0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Well, good morning. Great to have you all here. My name's Clint, and I want to add my welcome. Uh, Fredo, thanks for welcoming us and taking us through the announcements uh, if you want to be opening your Bibles, you can open them up to the book of Mark, chapter 11, and we're going to continue our study uh, through this gospel, which I know has been fruitful for me, and I hope it has been the same for you. Uh, studying this passage this week, question kept ringing in my mind. What do you do when God doesn't make sense, when life doesn't make sense? Some Sounds like some of y'all are there right now. I am too. You just can't figure out what he's doing. You can't figure out what is going on. And then I thought about the disciples this week. Y'all, we are 11 chapters in. We're almost to the end. 11 chapters, and they are still totally confused. They spend their time just just fumbling around, putting their foot in their mouth, getting corrected. They have no clue what is happening, and it's not going to get better i got to think by the end of this chapter, they're going to be just as confused as they ever have been. And some of their responses, we read this, and I'm just like, how can a person be this wrong? This is amazing. And then I think about their life before they followed Jesus. You know, before life followed Jesus, life made sense. They had it figured out. They knew what tomorrow was going to bring. They knew how to make a living. They knew how to fit into their community. They, they knew what to expect. Their life was working just great. Thank you very much. And then Jesus comes and he just just turns their lives completely upside down. But it's for the better. And so as I've been studying this passage this week, my prayer for me, my prayer for you, and I think the best thing we can pray is that this passage will disrupt your life just like it did those disciples. Here's our big idea today. The best thing Jesus can do for you is violate your expectations of him. The best thing, the best thing he can do for you in your life is to violate your expectations of him. Because here's what we're going to find out this morning. He's the king, but he's not the king anyone expects. He's the judge, but he's not going to behave the way anyone would expect. And you know what? There is a temple, but it's not the temple that anyone expects. So let's begin. Chapter 11, we'll start in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. They went away, they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. Some of them and those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the field. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So everything in these first few 11 verses, everything in this part is shouting, both to a Jewish audience and to a Roman audience, that Jesus is the king. That's what this is all about. This would have been apparent to a Roman audience what he was doing. Essentially what Jesus is doing is reenacting a Roman triumph parade. We have a little painting here of of, uh, what this kind of looked like. And so this is what the Romans would do. Anytime they conquered an area, they would go into the capital city and and the general would be right there on them big war horse and a big chariot with all his armies and there'd be all these shows of power and prestige and wealth and riches and they would enter this newly conquered city. Best thing, now we don't do this these days, best thing I can, uh, analogy I could draw from my life was the movie Aladdin. Have you seen Aladdin? You know, and he walks in riding the elephant and this is how powerful I am, this is how rich I am and it's, it is a victory parade. And then every Jew in the audience would have realized he isn't just any king, he's the Messiah. He's the Davidic king sent from God. This is chock full of Old Testament references. So uh, Zechariah 14 said that Jesus, the Messiah, when he would come, he would enter the temple from the Mount of Olives. And that's exactly what we find in verse 1. We're told he throws leafy branches, or these would have been palm branches, out in front of Jesus. Now palm branches were a Jewish symbol. They meant one thing. It meant victory. And so they put it on their coins. They would decorate even the synagogues with these palm branches. They lay their coats down. This is a reference to 2 Kings 9, where we see the coronation of the king Jehu. So it's an acknowledgement by the people that this is the king, but it's also a form of submission. So you're, you're throwing your coat down kind of as a symbol of throwing yourself down in front of somebody. It is submission. It's saying, not only are you the king, you're my king. And then the words, they're not making up these words. These words come from Psalm 118. Now, uh, Hosanna means save or please save. It could be a request, it could also be a proclamation of this is what's happening now. And this Psalm, Psalm 118, actually, Psalm 113 through 118 are a set of hymns. We call the uh, Psalms of Ascent. And so Jesus is traveling a road that many other pilgrims would have traveled from Jericho into Jerusalem as they make their pilgrimage to the Passover. Thousands would have traveled this road just for this event alone and thousands every year. And we have a a picture of the elevation profile. So they're traveling from Jericho, which is on the far side, sea level. It's 720 feet below sea level. And then you see Jerusalem on the other side, uh, 2,450 feet above sea level. So you can see why they called these the Psalms of Ascent. These, this was essentially the playlist that they would recite and sing and declare as they made this journey from Jericho into Jerusalem on top of the mountain. And so to them, they've repeated the, these words. Their ancestors have repeated these words thousands of years and they're so so when they say hosanna they're saying that this is god saving us and to them this came with one expectation the coming of this messiah king came with one big expectation it was political and military victory over the romans He's going to give us our national independence. He's going to send those Romans headed for the hills. And even the tongue of this told them this. So this is at the beginning of the Passover week where they are celebrating their liberation from another foreign power, Egypt, and their freedom. So as Jesus walking in, y'all, the, listen, the crowds, the disciples, Everybody was absolutely confident in what was happening. Jesus is king, and he's going to kick the Romans out. That's what everyone knew. Except two things seem really out of place. There's two things about this that no one expected. First, and you may have noticed, instead of on a war horse with an army, it's one guy on a donkey. Imagine you've seen, you know, the Oscar red carpet when all they pull up in the big limousines, all dressed fancy. Imagine all these people come, all these stars come in, and then here comes somebody in a Ford Pinto with overalls. No, no offense, Steve. No offense, Steve. That's what this would have looked like. Once well, again, it's another prophecy. Zechariah 9 says this king, this Messiah, even though he's all powerful, he's going to have God's kingdom. He is going to come Humbly on a donkey, on a colt. Now understand this king is going to be humble. That doesn't mean he is weak. That's what's going on in verse two through six. You know, read verse two through six and it sounds kind of weird. It's like, it kind of sounds like Jesus is teaching his disciples to steal people's livestock and then use Jedi mind tricks to make them think, no, I'm not really stealing this. This is not the donkey you desire or something like that. That's not what's going on. Okay. What's going on is uh, Jesus is in complete control. He is showing, once again, his complete control over nature. It's a donkey that's never been ridden before. Y'all don't try this at home. If you try to hop on a donkey that's never been ridden before, it's going to go poorly for you. But even untamed nature knows to obey this king. And the timing is his. He is in complete control. This is a divine appointment. So he is powerful, but he is humble, What he's going to do with all of his position, with all of his power, he is going to come to serve. That's why we've been memorizing Mark 10, 45. The son of man, he is God, but he did not come to serve, but to be served. Second thing that's out of place. Now, this should be obvious to them. I don't know if you know this, but you're supposed to do the victory parade after the battle. After you've fought the battle and won, then you do the victory parade. Jesus is doing the victory parade before the battle. Now, first we have to be clear on what the battle is. The battle is not with the Romans. It is far bigger than that because from the beginning of creation, everyone then, everyone today, everyone who has ever lived has been unable to conquer three enemies, Satan, sin, and death. No one has been able to claim victory over those. But Jesus is saying, I will claim victory over them. And the battlefield is not a valley somewhere. The battlefield is the cross. And Jesus has been clear three times. He has said outright, I'm going to suffer and be crucified and die and rise again. And the disciples are like, what? Huh?" They they never understand. But Jesus is claiming victory on the cross before the battle takes place place. He's I want you to know, no one's taking my life from me. I'm laying it down. And that death is not what you expect. That death is not a loss. It is not defeat. It is the ultimate victory. Jesus is saying to, to Israel. He's is saying to Rome. He is saying to us, I am the king, but I'm just not the king that you expect. And here's the thing about that. We really don't like it when people violate our expectations. All you got to do is be married for about five seconds or really in any relationship for more than five seconds. And you know, this is where 99% of conflict comes from is the other person doesn't do what I have decided they should do. And if they really loved me, they would do what I decided they should do. And when you don't do what I decided you should do, well, then I get disappointed. I get angry. I get resentful. I'm seeing a lot of elbows flying right now. And that's why these are the last words of praise Jesus will hear from a crowd. The praise ends there. And they will shift from crowning him to killing him. And it all starts now. It all accelerates based on what he does next. So Jesus kind of interrupts the party say, not only am I a different king than you expect, but I'm also the judge. And he is going to judge the last people they ever expected him to judge. Let's pick it up in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, this begins another what we've been calling a marking sandwich, where you get these series of events, but we got to interpret them. we got to take them all together. So we're going to get this, the uh, buns of our, the bread of our sandwich is going to be this fig tree. So we're going to deal with the fig tree. It's going to go somewhere else. And then the fig tree is going to come back. What's also interesting is this is the only time we see from Jesus a miracle of judgment. Lots of miracles, healing and oh, feeding 5,000 and 4,000, walking on water. We get great miracles. we we'll probably prefer those miracles. Here is a supernatural miracle of judgment. And we got to understand what happens here. So he sees the fig tree from a distance at first, and he's hungry. Got to understand fig tree. So the fig tree in Palestine is very unique. What happens there is a fig tree, the first thing it produces round about March is these small edible buds. And these small edible buds, they're not the full-grown figs, but they would be a common kind of snack uh, for peasants and passersby. Then after that, in early April, all these green leaves would appear. So what's unusual about that is you get fruit and then you get leaves. And then later about May, you would get the full-blown figs, the full fruit, okay? And remember where we are. We are at the beginning of Passover. This is early April. And so when Jesus sees this tree at a distance, it looks healthy because it's full of these green leaves. And he has a right to expect, then when I walk up to it, it's going to have these little uh, buds that I can eat. But as he gets close, he realizes what he's seen from afar is not a true indicator of this tree's health. When he gets close, he realizes there is no fruit. It has the appearance of fruit from afar, but once you get close and inspect it, there is nothing there, okay? You see the picture here? From afar, it looks great. It should have fruit. You get close, there is no fruit. And then we get what I think is the most important clue in this passage. He says, the disciples heard it. He is doing this to teach the disciples something. He's trying to show them something, something bigger than the fig tree is going on here. Jesus is going to give them a living parable. Now remember, Jesus is a prophet. This is, Old Testament prophets were notorious for this. When there was a message, there was of vital importance. We need everybody to get this. Then the prophet would act out a living parable. So he told Isaiah, Isaiah, I need you to walk around naked for three years. Well, that'll get people's attention, won't it? Yeah. Hey, Ezekiel, I need you to lay on your side for 430 days. This is what Jesus is doing because this is such an important message he wants his disciples to get. And there's something else the disciples would have known Immediately, they would have known and understood that a fig tree was a symbol for Israel throughout the Old Testament. We see it in Jeremiah, we see it in Hosea, we see it in Joel. Now think about this. What did they expect from the Messiah Once he came for them, they were Jews, they were Israelites. He was going to judge Rome and save Israel. And if, so if Jesus was going to do a living parable of what they expected, man, he should have blessed that fig tree. It should have been like Jack and the Beanstalk. That thing should have shot up to the clouds. God says, no. God's saying to them, I've searched my people for the fruit of worship of righteousness, of faith, and i found none. And so now I am judging the fig tree. And next we get the meat of the sandwich. So Jesus has given this this visual, visual parable to prepare us for what he is going to do next. And he goes straight to the heart of the temple. Let's pick it up, verse 15. says, and they came to Jerusalem, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Okay, so the correlation, the picture could not be more clear here. Fruitless tree is a picture of the fruitless temple. And again, he is going to judge them, but not the way they expected. Why? They expected this Davidic king to come to the temple and cleanse out all those foreigners. Get all those foreigners out of here. He does the opposite. He clears out some of the Jews to make room for more foreigners. Now, we got to get a picture in our minds of what would have been going on here. So we got a little diagram of, of the Temple Mount. You can see it's a huge, you probably can't see it from. there's like little ant specks on there. Those are people. So this is a huge complex. It's about 37 acres. Now, to, to, the, to a Jew, for you, your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, everyone who come before you, this is the most important real estate on planet earth. This is where you meet God. This is where your sins are forgiven. All of your hope of redemption, of a relationship with God, depends on this real estate right here. Now, they had a place for the Gentiles. In fact, 25 of the 37 acres was this court of the Gentiles. And so you can kind of see this outer open area that surrounds the middle of the temple. This was the court of the Gentiles. And this was the only place they could go. In fact, there's a fence going into the inner part of the temple. And there was a sign on that fence that says, Any Gentile that goes past this point, on himself shall he put the blame for the death which will ensue. Think about putting that sign on my property. Took it serious. This is the only place a Gentile can go. And they had set up a market in it. And so during Passover, you they do. They were all well required. They needed to offer sacrifices. And people were traveling from all over to come down the Jericho Road. They are coming from all over, and they can't carry all the animals, all the things they need. So they had these stalls set up where you could sell. They could sell animals and all the other supplies that required for sacrifices. So they, they mentioned pigeons, and these were the sacrifices for the poor people. And they had lambs. They had all kind of stuff, and they had a money exchange set up. So if you were a male twenty years or older, you had to pay a half shekel tax. But again, people are coming from all over the place. They got all kind of different currencies. They said, no, you got to pay your tax in the temple currency. Don't worry. We've set up a nice little exchange booth. You can exchange your currency for our currency. Oh, by the way, we're going to take a little fee for doing that. And Jesus seems to hate it all he turns it over. And he puts it into the whole thing. He starts flipping over the table. Now you gotta, you gotta picture this thing. There are thousands to people. This is Disney World, like over Thanksgiving break. Okay, there are people wall to wall. A story at time said as many as two hundred and fifty five thousand lambs were sacrificed in one Passover back then. So there's lambs everywhere. Bur- when Jesus starts doing this, I mean, pigeons are flying, coins are hitting people in the face. All the two hundred fifty thousand, sheep, my ma ma, running around. I mean, this a circus. Why is he doing this? This doesn't seem helpful. Because it's just like the fig tree. I mean, from the distance, it looks great. Hey, look at all the people we're helping. Look at all that we're sacrificing and all that we're doing and all the efforts we're going to to keep the law and do do the sacrifices. But up close, it is not producing the fruit that God desires. What's the problem? Why not? The problem's not the system. The problem is the sinful human heart. And so he tells them, my intention for this place was it to be a house of prayer for all nations. And you have turned it into a den of robbers. And that's not Jesus freestyling. That is Jesus quoting an Old Testament condemnation passage uh, that they knew very well. And that they expected God to shout at all these other people. They did not expect God to point it at them. Now, we got to understand the accusation here, okay? So we hear robbers, and we think, oh, he's angry at the money changers. Like, there's a few people, you know, stealing money. They shouldn't be doing that, and that's who Jesus is angry at. But think about this. It's a den of robbers. Robbers don't steal in their dens, right? The den isn't where the robbers steal. Robbers go out to steal, And so he isn't angry at them for stealing. The den is where the robbers go to feel safe from judgment. The den is the safe house. And so Jesus is saying, you think what you do in here rescues you from what you do out there. That's the problem. And so I'm going to read the passage he's quoting and understand when he said this, he didn't have to say the whole passage. They would have known the whole passage. They would have known this is what he was saying to them. Jeremiah 7, starting in verse 9. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swell falsely and make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and say, we are delivered? Only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen, declares the Lord. I cannot overstate how convicting these words would have been. Because, again, they expected God to go get them and say this about all those crazy Gentiles out there. They never expected this to be turned on themselves. And it is convicting, y'all. It would be like someone coming here right now this morning and saying, are you kidding me? You guys have been doing all you want to all week. You've been sinning. You've been pursuing idols. You have not been loving one another. And you expect because you come in here one day a week and do a few rituals that that cleanses your heart. I see your heart. Y'all, it's like Jesus reading my mind and reading my mail and reading my heart. This is us, right? He's saying all the ritual, all the legalism, It has done nothing to heal the sin in your heart, and it has not produced the righteousness God desires. See, for us to really understand what Jesus is doing here, we we got to understand he's not just talking about a few bad apples. He's not just pointing out about a couple crooks in the temple, you know, say, hey, you guys, get out of here. This is the same accusation he had against his people hundreds of years ago back in Jeremiah and really dating all the way back to the garden. And we are not to read this and think that Gentiles would have done any better. If he cleans all them out and just fills it with Gentiles, guess what? The Gentiles are just going to recreate the same sin. And so would I, and so would you. This is what's been going on since the fall. Jesus is saying, we're all the robbers, y'all. All of us. We all live with sin and with rebellion in our hearts, and we tend to think, you know, a few, a few rituals here and there, some good deeds here or there. They're, they're going to make up for it, but it doesn't work. All it does is create a fruitless temple. So we need a new temple. You and I need a different temple, a place where true atonement can be made for our sin, a place where God really can dwell with man. But it's not the temple you'd expect. So Jesus goes back to the fig tree. He revisits the fig tree. Verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, that fig tree you cursed it has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt it in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So go back to the fig tree and Peter notices, and I think Peter's trying to Ask a question without asking a question, you know? I, I almost read this like he says it with nervous laughter. That fig tree you cursed, that symbolized the temple, it's, it's withered and gone. Uh, what do we do with that? You know, most Bibles, if you look up to verse 15 before Jesus enters the temple, they, it's got this heading. This heading says, Jesus cleanses the temple. That's what, that's what my Bible says. But it's important to remind us, those headings, added later, they are not inspired and I think my, the one in my Bible's wrong. Because according to the fig tree, Jesus isn't cleansing the temple. He's condemning it. He's not reforming the temple. He's destroying it. Probably better said he is fulfilling it. Because Jesus... I think what he's doing is saying, that's not the true temple, guys. I am. In fact, in chapter 14 in a little bit, during his trial, these two witnesses are going to come up. And they're saying, this crazy guy said the weirdest thing. He said he's going to destroy this temple in three days. Again, remember, this thing has like columns 35 feet tall. 37 feet. It's crazy. They're not bombs. How's he going to destroy it in three days? And then this crazy guy said he's going to rebuild it again, but not with human hands. Jesus is saying, I am the one who gives you a relationship with God. I am the one who can forgive your sins. That's what the book of Hebrews is going to go on to say. It's going to go on to say, the blood of bull and goats, the 255,000 sheep every year, it did nothing to take away anyone's sins. What did it do? It taught us that something innocent has to die to forgive our sins. Jesus is pointing us. To the true sacrifice, which is Himself. And look, look at how Jesus answers Peter's question that's not a question. What does He say? What does He say immediately to Peter? Have faith in God. And there it is again. I've said this a hundred times probably. I know you're tired of hearing it. All God wants from us is faith. That's it. That's why he says, Mark 1.15, when this kingdom comes, when you see the king coming, what is our response? Repentance and trust. That's it. Have faith, he says, not in your works, not in your sacrifices, not in 255,000 lambs, not in keeping the law. Have faith in God. He's saying have confidence that all God promised, all he promised through the sacrificial system, all of it will be accomplished in me. And we just have to trust. And then we get some of the most misunderstood, abused scriptures in all the Bible. But We have to keep them, remember, in the context. We're, we're eating this market sandwich all together. So we read verse 23 and 24. And, you know, some read it to me. Hey, if you muster up enough faith, then Jesus turns into your vending machine you that's just the attitude that, that Jeremiah 7 is attacking and Jesus has been attacking. And plus, if that were true, then the disciples would have gone around just tossing mountains into oceans and putting on shows instead of suffering and being martyred for their faith, which is what actually happened. But notice something in verse 23. He doesn't say any mountain, pick a mountain, any mountain will do. He says a specific mountain. He says this mountain. He's talking about a specific mountain. Now, let's put up the elevation profile again. Remember where they are. Now they have actually gone from Jerusalem to that little point, just a little bit higher next to it, to the Mount of Olives. They are in the highest place around. From there, you can see both the Temple Mount and way in the distance, the Dead Sea. The sea They're like the fig tree, has no life in it. And so when Jesus says this, I think he is pointing. He's saying, he's pointing to the temple mount, saying, you might as well throw this mountain into that dead sea over there. Empty religion does nothing for you. It is dead. What you need is faith. They also had a saying back then. To move a mountain was a metaphor in Jewish literature for solving a seemingly unsolvable problem, a very difficult problem. things like, "Can God make a rock so big even he can't lift it?" We In our house in the past, we've got on Googled like funny conundrums and stuff like that. Uh, things like, "Why is abbreviation such a long word? I don't know. It's a hard problem. What is another word for thesaurus? Seems like there should be one, right? My personal favorite. Melissa knows what's coming. She can probably tell you. Can you imagine a world where there are no hypothetical situations? Some of y'all is going to take a minute. Think about it, okay? These are mountains. If you could solve one of these, it would be called to move a mountain. Now, there is one mountain, one unsolvable problem that the disciples have not been able to wrap their heads around. Three times Jesus has told them he will suffer and die. But that violates all their expectations of him. And they, So one time Peter tells, tries to stop him. The other two times they argue about over who's the greatest. They, they don't get it. How can the creator of the universe, King, Messiah, suffer and die? And Jesus is showing them to be your temple, to be your sacrifice. That's why. And then he tells them to ask for something specifically. In verse 24, what did he tell them to ask for? Forgiveness. When you're praying for forgiveness. And we read, we read verse 24 and we think, you know, ask for anything in my name. Great. Mercedes. Uh, fix my problems. Make my kids happy. $50. Can we just do $50? Is that, can we do that? No. Again, we got to read in context. Right after that, verse 25, he tells them specifically to pray for forgiveness. Why? Because they had no concept of if that temple is destroyed, how do we get forgiveness? So let's put it all together. He's saying, you making sacrifice, that's as dead as the Dead Sea or a fruitless fig tree. My suffering, death, resurrection, that's the way to life. That's the way to forgiveness. Simply have faith in me. See, by the time this is over, he isn't the king they'd expect. But I'd say, isn't his version much better? He isn't the judge we expect. He's the judge that turns the judgment on himself. And isn't his version better? He isn't the temple we expect, but isn't his version so much better? Men and women, the best thing that Jesus can do for you is to violate your expectations of him. Because as he defies all of our expectations, he is meeting our greatest need. Which means for us this morning, when you don't understand what he's doing, trust who he is. When you don't understand what he's doing, you can trust who he is. I know every person here, every one of us, has experienced difficulties where God did meet, not meet your expectations of him. And it's only afterwards, maybe only in hindsight, you can look back and see. If that was the best thing for you. You know what, y'all, then there's the circumstances they are still open-ended. We're still in the middle of an unfinished story. And it doesn't make sense. You're just as confused as ever. You know, you thought you were doing the right thing, but things aren't turning out right. You thought God was good, but this sure doesn't seem good. I realized this week, you know, Jesus shows almost no interest in explaining his actions to his disciples. He just kind of three times, almost in passing, just matter of factly, tells them what's going to happen. And they clearly don't get it. They clearly don't understand. But he doesn't stop to explain it. I mean, you'd think him bust out some pie charts. Let's have a weekend long summit on what's about to happen. No, he just keeps going about his business. And instead, he says over and over and over again just trust me. Just trust me. Have faith in me. Believe in me. Follow me. And he spends way more time explaining who he is than what he's doing. He says, "I'm God. I'm the son of man. I'm the Messiah, the king, the temple, I'm the passover lamb. That's all you need to know. This is who I am and if you know who I am, you can trust me no matter what." So I think for me, for all of us we What if we spent this week seeking answers, seeking circumstances a little less, and instead turned our heart towards who he is and trusting him? And you know, I want you to know this morning, you can do that even if you've never believed before. You can ask God who he is and ask him to reveal to you who he is. You can ask him, is it true that he is God who became man, who died for your sins and rose again so that you may have life, so that you may have fellowship with the Father? Secondly, I'd say for, the, for us this morning, this is a reminder for me all week, let's go to the cross instead of to the temple. <laughs> to the degree you think your sacrifices, your work, your attendance, your discipline, your sin avoidance make you acceptable to God, you're going to a dead temple. There's no life there. At best, you can become a leafy, looks good from a distance, but fruitless Christian. When we come to the cross, when we come to the cross, we come by faith and with empty hands. I don't have an offering to bring that's worth it. There's nothing I can bring. We just come by faith. And what do we see when we get to the cross? I didn't put this together until this week. Matthew 27 tells us that Jesus, it wasn't just him, he died between two what? Robbers. It's the same word that Jesus used when he's making condemnations in the temple, which means as Jesus is condemning the dinner robbers in the temple, he knows he's going to receive their judgment. He's going to die a robber's death. And who is the first person to put their faith in a crucified Christ? A robber himself. To come to the cross, men and women, is to realize, I've been the robber the whole time. But Jesus paid for my sin, and then he accepts me, not as a robber, but as a son. The words of the old hymn repeated in my mind over and over this week. Hallelujah, what a Savior. He's not what we expect, but isn't his version better?